In a world where we can buy clothing off the peg for a few pounds, what makes bespoke tailoring so special? What is the skill and work that goes into a suit or evening gown that is handmade to fit you perfectly? Welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast, exploring creativity in all its diverse forms. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. My guest today is Savile Row Taylor, Carol Elaine, talking to me about the art of bespoke tailoring. So thank you for coming on to the show, Carol Elaine. Thank you for the opportunity, Yang Mei. Now, you started out life as a banker, um, but now you're a Savile Row tailor. Can you tell us why and how you changed careers? I can remember my very first uh, sitting down at a sewing machine and I was five. So I continued on with that, you know, all while I grew up. Um, but as far as my parents were concerned, that wasn't going to be a lucrative a job prospect for me, so they kind of encouraged me to go and get a proper job. But I always sewed. I made clothes all through college. I took a business degree, and I moved to Florida. At the end of that, I was born in Detroit, and I moved to Florida because there was a great recession in the Northeast of the United States in the late 70s. And I got my first job in a bank but I also sewed for the seaside ladies who lunch on the weekends. So I never let that go. And after about six years in banking and moving up the ladder quite fast, I never really found the happiness in that career, in that line of work. I, it, it tired me out mentally. It exhausted me physically. And I didn't feel like I was doing much of anything. But when I would sit down and I would talk to a client and, or talk to a team that was doing an opera workshop, say, I used to make costumes as well. So that gave me great energy. And, I, and then when I was in Florida, I had the opportunity to meet the London Symphony Orchestra because the town I was living in, Daytona Beach, was their summer home. So every other year they would come and have a, a residency and play some of the most amazing concerts with the most, you know, the sought-after soloists. And uh, I, around that time, to make a long story short, I made the decision of, on invitation of some of the members in the symphony because they said, you need to come to London if this is what you want to do because we've got choirs and orchestras and chamber groups and, you know, and lots of women breaking into this field. So I thought, right. I will just take a sabbatical and I'll do that. I moved to London for the summer and I never went home. And now so, this is home. <laughs> so you came to London to make clothes for orchestras and performers. That was the idea. But also it gave me the opportunity to happen upon Savile Row, which I knew about. And I thought that would be the epitome of one's training. And I could do both. You know, if it worked out, I could do both. I could start a business. I could make concert wear. So, and when I did that, I did open a business and I called it the concert store. So you could come and you could order any garment for the stage. So um, did you have any training other than starting at age five? I trained constantly. 
Mostly it was aunties and my mother and my grandmothers. And then I had a couple of jobs working in a, a dry cleaner, learning alteration work. And then when I was about 16, I got a proper job studying with a, a Polish tailor called Michael. And uh, he had a little business and I helped him with alterations and he taught me a huge amount. I was a Saturday girl, but I learned a huge amount. So you were doing this um, in your spare time while you were a banker initially. Yes. yes. And, and what I love about your story is that you say that, you know, when you were doing um, this work that you didn't enjoy banking and, and there may, you know, that there will be people out there who, who love being bankers and who love the corporate life and they get a lot of energy. But if you're not the right fit and you're trying to force yourself to do something that's not your great passion, it's exhausting. Um, but you were able to, um, nonetheless, um, in your spare time, do tailoring. And um, so now having transitioned over, um, have you got more energy? Are you happier? I've been tailoring now for 33 years in London and I still get the goose flesh. Uh, I honestly do uh, when I get a new piece of fabric, a new length of fabric, or when I get a, a new commission. And they, the, it's, I'm lucky because my work has been so varied. So I've, I've made clothes for women, for men, for athletes. I was thrilled to make the um, uh, Olympic uniforms for Team Britain for the um, 2012 Olympic Games. And uh, Steve Wilson won the gold medal you know, in, in, in my gilet. And Fantastic. that was wonderful. I, I worked with the Commonwealth Games, same, um, British shooting. I've made garments for numerous Albert Hall concerts. Um, I've dressed some royalty. I've dressed some people in the House of Lords. Um, it's just endless and some installations. Um, one of my, oh, one of the real heartaches was this year I had, I stood to have two of my pieces in the Met for their yearly exhibition. It would have been previewed at the big gala, the Met Ball, and of course, that didn't happen in May because of the virus. It's been rescheduled maybe for October, but it might not happen for another year. And I was all set to go and make a road trip out of it. Oh, fantastic. And having worked for two months on these pieces, I recreated um, uh, some iconic pieces from the 70s. And I worked intensely hard on it. And when it was finished, I, I was so looking forward to going. But of course, that felt yep. flat. It's but we, hopefully I will get the opportunity and it will, you know. The, the, um, the title for this, this year's exhibition was About Time. So it is about time. It's, it's taken on a new poignancy. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we'll come to um, um, your, your work as art uh, a little bit later on. But I want to sort of just go back in time um, and, and um, so that we can follow your, your, your journey, really, um, as, as, a, as, a, as, as a tailor and how um, kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed you turned up in London um, and you started making clothes for performers and, and, there's a, and, and for sports people um, and um, you presumably have to, you know, they, they look like, you know, for, for, for a layperson watching um, musicians play, they're, they're dressed in, um, in white tie or, or, you know, a suit. Um, 
is it an ordinary suit or is, are there special things that you have to consider because they're moving, um, uh, you know, their arms or, you know, their bodies or whatever um, that makes it different? If it's an ordinary suit that they have to wear, it's going to be very cumbersome and it's going to fight them. And I've talked to musicians about this. When we restyle a suit or we make a bespoke suit, then you, there's so many things to consider. I mean, the body for, for starters, there's no symmetry in the body. But if you have a musician who's been practicing their life in a certain posture, arms are longer, certain sides of the body are very more developed muscularly. The posture could be askew. So you take a look at this piece of, this person that walks into your studio who is a sculpture. You know, they have, they have mass and they have proportions. And then you have to build another sculpture and put that on them and make it easy for them to do their job. So say a harpist, they have this huge long reach. So whatever you're doing to a sleeve, it can't get caught in the elbow or it can't rip out of the shoulder, you know, can't rip out of the arm side. Oh my God, can you imagine as they're playing, <laughs> suddenly it gets caught horrendous. There have been accidents on stage. <laughs> And so, yeah, this um, uh, musicians that sit or stand, that takes a different approach, you know? So yes, the, the garment has to work with the wearer. It has to move with them. And so you have to make allowances and put tolerances in and when you cut. And that's, you know, you've got a flat piece of fabric, you've got a paper pattern, but then you're going to build something that's three-dimensional. That's going to work with them for them. And presumably that's the same as well with sports, uh, sports people um, uh, in terms of the Olympic athletes that you've, you've worked with. That has to be a consideration as well. Exactly the same. So there's the body movements that you know, have to be in unison with the garment. But also in the case of the um, British shooting, they couldn't raise their gun above a certain level until they requested the, you know, this, this clay pigeon to be flown. So there's a big marker that the judge could see, right? So, so that was part of the visuals. That was part of the whole logistics, the choreography of, of the sport. So fit, um, fitting into color schemes that have to do with the national identity, um, marking points for the judges to see. So a lot of things incorporated in these, in these garments. This is really fascinating. And, and for, for listeners who, who don't know, um, Carol worked with me on my solo theatre show, Bound Feet Blues, and designed the costume for that. Um, and we had, we had to work with all these things that you've talked about, because I run around and, uh, in, 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 in the theatre show, I raise my arms up, um, and I'm sort of contorted in different, um, you know, physical performance um, uh, positions. Um, and we had, um, I guess, quite, it was fun to see you at work, but I guess a sort of headache as well, as you kind of try to engineer this, this <laughs> tunic that wouldn't ride up, that would have enough give and all that. It was really fascinating to watch you work. I love the solution. It was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was, a, it was a bit of engineering, wasn't it? But it was attaching your top of your costume to the, to the trousers that you wore, wasn't it? And, but not have the rigging interfere. And Absolutely. as you did all your calisthenics around, because you did, you covered a lot of ground. 
you know? And it was a very physical performance. And you're working with a uh, fabric that's, number one, has to be cool. Number one, has to give. It had to have stretch in it. Well, when you have elastine in a, a fabric and it fits you well, it's on you, it's not baggy or anything, when you start to move and raise your arms and things, it raises up, but then because it's got the elastine in it, it stays there, doesn't it? So we had to, um, we had to control it, didn't we? And it was a lot, it was a lot of fun working yes. that through. Absolutely. And, and it fitted me beautifully um, because you chose the exact material that we needed to to kind of be very simple but sh but kind of followed my form but i i remember laughing to myself just before the you know um it was like you know five minutes and um i had buckled myself in um oh, i have to go to the loo so no, <laughs> unbuckle no. myself i was all panic and then rebuckle myself back in um of course because it was a you know low uh, you know we didn't have the budget for a dress or anything like <laughs> you were on your own That's oh right. no Oh gosh, did the handshake get in the way, Yagme? <laughs> <laughs> but it worked, it worked perfectly on stage and that was the main thing. It, well, it, it did, did and it I, remember, it, I remember being in the audience and being incredibly pleased with the results. Um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about performance uh, uh, tailoring. Um, so Savile Row, you know, we, you heard about it when you were a young girl in, in, in America. I heard about it when I was growing up in Malaysia. A Savile Row suit, a Savile Row tailor, that was, you know, the iconic, the top of the pre profession. So why is it so special? Well, Savile, Savile Row, London, in Mayfair, is... It's the home of the largest concentration of master bespoke tailors in the, in the world. And it's where the best craftspeople work. And it's a magical place because it's also in the center of this, you know, all this culture that we have in London. We have London all cultural around London, but you've got the theaters and the restaurants and you've got the parks and you've got the galleries. So you have all this culture. And so people come to London to go to Savile Row to get their fine clothes and then to go out. So it's, it works, it works beautifully. And then of course you have the great houses on Savile Row and then below stairs you have the community of makers. So you'll have your coat makers, jacket, blazers, coats, top coats, waistcoat makers, trouser makers. And then you'll have more and more now you'll have some ladies tailors. But when I arrived in London, there were very few of me. So it means the best in sartorial excellence, if, if you will. So how, at which point can you call yourself, can, can one call oneself a Savile Row tailor? That's um, a little harder to define. I suppose if you work on Savile Row, then that certainly qualifies. Um, there's an outworking system that spreads far and wide across London. And they are Savile Row tailors because they produce work for Savile Row, as I do. And so you can say you're a Savile Row tailor. Um, it's, there's an interesting bit of history because I would call myself a bespoke master tailor. Now, bespoke is, we'll get into that, but a master tailor is somebody who cuts and makes their own work. So you also have cutters and tailors. Now a cutter would be able to cut any garment and then they would trim it up. They would put the linings and the 
interlinings and all the architecture that goes in, the zips and the buttons and everything. And they would farm that out to whatever maker would then produce that garment. A master, I do the whole project, the whole job myself. And I call myself a bespoke tailor because that's the classic traditional word for what I do. And it comes from the word bespeak, which means that you're, you're spoken for, it's you're intended, like you get engaged, it's you bespeak. The past tense of that is bespoke. Oh, I love that. So your that, client sort that, of gets engaged with you. Yes, in a, in, and that's kind of what happens, yes. So this, um, this word showed up in, in 1500s as intended. And then in the 1700s, it then referred to having a garment made for you by hand. And then what, what happened was the manufacturing side started to catch up and say, well, this is just as good. And, and this is bespoke. And they took that word. And this annoyed the tailors. And it annoyed the customers as well, because they were paying for a bespoke suit. But then someone else over there was paying for a bespoke suit, which cost a lot less, didn't look as good. But they thought, well, so what's going on? So anyway, this feud ended up in the high court in 2008. And the bespoke fraternity lost the use of the word bespoke. Because the judge ruled that if you were getting something, even if it was made to measure, it was still made for you. So they could use that word. And then that word then went ballistic. You could get a bespoke cupcake. Yes. You could get a bespoke yacht, a holiday. These things were manufactured, but it, the waters became very muddy and very confused. So people now, don't, I don't know if they understand that term and what it means and the history behind it, but, but that's what Savile Row aims to preserve wonderful and it's a wonderful tradition that still continues and and i think it's wonderful that these things do still continue um so okay this is quite a good uh, point to ask you to take us on a journey um of a suit or a gown um that you might make for a client like starting from the first moment the client says oh i would like a gown or i would like a suit um, and is it different for, for for men and women what's the process process goes like this um you meet you meet with your tailor, you meet face to face, and you look each other in the eye and you talk about what you want. And the tailor or the designer will make some sketches, you'll agree on some things, you'll disagree on some things. Um, that's the opportunity when you find out what your client doesn't want, as well as what they do want. And where you can encourage them to maybe be a little bit more adventurous, something they may not have thought of. That works interesting, for men and women, because with a, with a man's garment, um, you can choose some wacky linings or you can choose some different color punctuations on the suit. Ah, with a woman, you have a bit more latitude because you can have feathers and diamante and all sorts of things going on. So, uh, but you meet, you discuss what you want, then the customer goes away and the tailor gets busy with uh, the pattern work. So they draft out the pattern and then the cloth is selected, and then they will cut the main pieces for this garment, gown or suit, and then they will baste it together. Basting means it's put together temporarily with longer stitches made of softer thread, 
thread that you can break easily during the fitting process if you want to take something apart and then you can restitch it. So that all happens by the end of the first fitting, you kind of know where you're going with the garment. Um, if there's going to be some major changes, you might order a second fitting right away and say, we're going to have to take another look at this. Or if someone's changed their mind, same thing. Ah, this is different. I'm going to have to redo this, so we're going to have to take another look at this. Then the garment is, is ripped down. Not literally ripped down, but it's, the basting stitches are taken out, it's pressed flat, and then you recut it. Then you put it together a little stronger. You're confident in some of the major seams. You might put a pocket in. You might assemble a collar or get the center front button line correct. You might know where you are with the hemline of the skirt or the trousers. Pockets will go in. Um, and then you'll meet the customer for the second time and you'll get a better look at it. And then from then on, you should be able to finish it or go on to a third fitting. Some tailors on Savile Row will have as many as six fittings because they just want to see the client at different times of the day, before lunch or after lunch, and, you know, and just refine it as, as much as possible. But that's basically this, you know, the, the, the process. And then there's, at the end of it, there's some finishing. So there's a, there might be a lot of handwork. There might be a lot of decorative work on the outside of the garment. The might, pressing is important. Pressing is very, it's vital to really put the shape into the garment. So at the very end, things can take a little longer than you, one might think. And, uh, and then, depending on where your client is in the world, it might have to have a little moth protection, be sealed up and, and, and stored, or not. You know, it's ready and they're right there, they come in and get it, put it on and hopefully they're they're satisfied and go away. And then they might live in it for a couple of wearings and then decide, actually, we need a few tweaks. And that's common. And then they'll bring it back and you'll, you'll sort those tweaks out. And, and each step along the way, it's all hand handmade. Yes. I mean, you do use a sewing machine. <laughs> but in order to put the shape in, you've got these layers of fabric, you know, in a men's suit you have materials like, um, like a canvas. You have a horsehair, a canvas which is made with horsehair, and that is woven into the weft, which goes across the body. So it keeps the suit in the upper part, it keeps it spread out, and laying nicely, laying, laying evenly. It doesn't collapse on the chest. And then you have a softer fabric called a demet that goes over that to protect the horsehair fibers and that all these fabrics work together and they're all put together by hand and that you form a shape and most shapes in a bespoke, bespoke garment are curved and they curve back into the body nothing flaps out all goes back onto the body onto the curves it's so poetic when you talk in this way. I just love listening to you. And, and it's sort of poetry, but it's also engineering and sculpting. Um, and so when you work with, particularly with uh, uh, women's gowns, um, and I suppose that's my particular interest, um, mm -hmm. would you, you know, when, when a client comes, let's say if I were to come to you um, and um, do me a gown, make it beautiful, um, mm -hmm. Do you look at your client and go, okay, this is her shape, this is her size, this is, you know, she's wide here, she's long here. Um, 
and would you recommend and in your design how something that would would work really well for for, for your client because I might come to you and oh, I've just seen this in Vogue. I think this is the latest fashion. Um, but you think, oh, golly, it's not really <laughs> going to, you know, because of her shape. And, uh, you know, it's not really going to do, do her any favours. So how do you navigate all that? And, and, and how do you come up with your ideas and, 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 and around the design for, for a specific individual? Sure. I, luckily, by the time a person has decided to invest in something, they have a pretty good idea of what they're after. And you can, if someone has never been through this process, you might say, well, maybe you should go and try a few things on. You know, go to some boutiques and try some things on. But there's, you definitely, as soon as somebody walks in the door, you, you notice things. You notice the way they walk, how they carry themselves, what they're wearing, what they've chosen to come in and talk to you in. So you... And then things are revealed in discussion. And sometimes you, you might say to someone when you're measuring them, oh, you, you beautiful skin or a neat shoulder line, or why do you want long sleeves? Is there any particular reason for this? Or have you ever worn a, a wasted garment? Or would you, you know, what do you think of a higher wasted garment? Would he, so when you ask questions, and sometimes you, things are revealed, as I said, also, if somebody has no idea at all, then you need to have some images, you need to have something to look at or to talk about. You, know, you don't always turn to books or magazines or distractions. Sometimes you just talk about garment and describe things. You know? um, I do have rails of samples. So if I'm saying something like a raglan sleeve, I can pull a raglan sleeve sample off the rail so they know what I'm talking about. Um, but I think for the most part, uh, particularly with musicians, I, I remember, you know, they spent their life with their instrument. They know exactly what they want to sound like. They know exactly how to play something. And they were that definite when it came time to ordering something to wear. They, they just knew where they were at. Um, but it's also equally wonderful to work with somebody who hasn't a clue and needs help. Because... That for me is, that's the whole job in one. They're satisfied and I'm satisfied at the end, you know, and it's, it's, that's a great feeling. It's indescribable, really. When somebody walks out with a garment on their arm and they're thrilled with the results and you've been through this creative process together and they've, in, you know, they've been there every step of the way. That's wonderful, wonderful. So what kind of garments do you, do you make? Is it everyday stuff or um, special yeah, I, um, outfits? It depends. It depends. Some of it's formal wear. I do, uh, I do some bridal work, which is a lot of fun, particularly with brides that don't want a, a white dress. You know, they want, they want to get married in something, but they want their own dress. You know, they want to make this virtuoso um, event um, unique to them. So, and they want to wear it again. So that's fun. I love dressing for the stage because that's big and, and you know, they're mighty garments for that. And sometimes you, you're taking snippets from the music, you know, whether it's an opera or an aria or something, then, you know, you can work with that in your story. Um, I do enjoy classic separate day wear. 
I just like these smaller sculptural pieces that women I know are going to wear a lot of. And then you can help them build a wardrobe with things that they just reach for and confidently it's there, put it on, and they don't have to worry because <laughs> women have a lot more complex problems when it comes to getting dressed than men do. Men have a uniform, they wear suits and a tie, and they look, they glisten, right? They look wonderful. Um, women aren't so lucky, and it's, it's a bit torturous to try to fit into that environment, whether it's corporate or, you know, whatever job they're doing. It's, 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 they suffer differently. And so I, I get a kick out of solving that problem for them. And I have to say, when um, I was working in, in my corporate world, when I was dressed smartly and I felt really, really confident, it affected my performance. It affected how I walked into a meeting room. Um, and and it, is, um, it is a costume, but it's also daily wear. And so having someone like you create something specifically, day wear or uh, uh, you know, a special occasion gown or something, that mm. is a wonderful thing um, to know that people like you are there. So you see yourself as a creative artist as well. Um, so you, you touched on that about your, your, um, uh, a piece of your work going to be in an exhibition. Um, can you tell us more about how tailoring can be seen as an art? Right. Um, that's a really interesting question, Yang Mei. I think I had learned a lot of fundamentals. But there was a huge amount of work. There were decades in that. And I think what happens is in any, in any pursuit, in any discipline, you have to go through that, that work and the fundamentals before you can make that work your own. And I think I spent a few years anyway. I mean, when I entered the Savile Row community, I, they put me to work right away because I had 20 years of experience. But... I didn't really feel, I felt I was just making things to order. And then something happened. Some, something happened when I got confidence in, and my hands learned what to do. And the hands took over and I think that freed up another process. And I think when I made the fundamental work my own, that's when I felt this is different. I'm doing something else now. I've, I've crossed a bridge. And I know I've made things for people and they said, oh, you, you're an artist. And I thought, what, what do they mean? Why, why is this discipline an art form? And I think because it, it takes all the senses to do this job, you have to notice things. And I think artists notice things. That's, that's the first. And then every run you make, every seam you sew, every final polish you put on, it, it has to be beautiful. Bespoke garments, when you turn them inside out, they're stunning. So I think there is, I, it has to be an art form and I can see that it is. And I feel that it is. Does that make, does that make any sense at all? Yeah, um, yes, I think you're, it's sort of taking it out of the everyday, but also it is, it is like a bridge um, between everyday uh, utility wear, you know, um, functional wear. Uh, mm. Each garment has a specific um, purpose, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a, a, an evening gown or a, or a day suit. Um, but taking it into art is kind of, 
um, it's an expression about the human form. It's not just um, a thing in, just there out of context, but it's the context of, of I guess, our aspirations, our dreams, um, our hopes. It, it, how you talked about when you see your client come in, you learn something about them from what they wear. Um, and so I'm just thinking, just translating the analogy of my, my, my writing, my, my, um, my stage performance, my novels, my uh, um, poetry. It's, it's about capturing something about what it means to be human. Um, and I, I guess that's what your um, artwork, your, ta your tailoring as, as art is, is about. I think we could, it's just come to mind, we could talk about two designers, because I think they, you might call a, a tailor, a bespoke tailor, you know, that, that's a discipline, that's a job, it's a different kind of a job. But let's talk about somebody like Jean Muir, and let's compare and contrast Jean Muir's work with Alexander McQueen's work. So Jean Muir made very simple unfussy, pure garments, mostly in wool crepes and beautiful jerseys. You'd call it simple, but that's, it's far from that, you know? Nowhere to hide the little black dress. In that was very clever cutting, and exquisite workmanship, and top detail. And then look at somebody like Alexander McQueen. Now, everybody called him an artist. Most people that knew what he was doing would go a step further and call him a genius, right? So I guess we're in that community. But a lot of us don't get to show off in the same way. So Jean Muir wasn't a show off. Alexander McQueen was. <laughs> and you would instantly say, that's art, right? So what about your, your, your pieces that have, have gone into galleries and museums or exhibitions? Can you tell us something about those? Sure. Well, I, I, I had the great pleasure and privilege of working with uh, Georgina Godley, who was, uh, is famous but made her name in the 70s. And she made a collection called Lumps and Bumps, where she celebrated the asymmetries of the female form. It was her work. Other designers took it on. Uh, Comme de Gasson did some work like that. Vivian Westwood did some work like that. But, but Georgina had the idea initially. She also had ideas for shapewear, which are items in the lingerie departments that we're seeing now, incredibly comfortable, fashioned undergarments, you know, that, that fit and are comfy and look pretty and everything. And she had these glimpses of these you know genius ideas a long time ago and I got to work with her and um, one of the collections we made um, I made with her was um, it was called 12 outfits for 12 people and Georgina went into her stock and she got all her antique bits and everything that she'd collected and she made this amazing collection um, and uh, that was so fulfilling it was really like making a separate art piece for each each outfit. But that collaboration continues to this day. Um, so in addition to the bespoke work, the everyday work, the stage work, I also have this great friend and collaborator in Georgina. Fantastic. And now, uh, 
tailoring is a very personal service uh, and involves close proximity with your client. Um, (laughs) This has been a very peculiar year in terms of COVID and lockdown and social distancing. Um, How have you um, evolved your services and your business and your art form uh, in the context of all this this year? Well, we had, we heard rumors that there was going to be a lockdown, didn't we? Because this came from the East. So I got very nervous and um, I have a rail full of bespoke garments. Okay, they're, they're half paid for, they're, they're half made. And I could see that there's going to be some trouble ahead if this work didn't get finished. So, and that's exactly what happened. So I had to hit the ground running with a new idea. And I thought, well, um, maybe people's shapes are going to change. Maybe people aren't going to have as much money. Maybe the supply chains are going to close down. So I'm going to start a new vein of my work, which I, I kind of did with some clients. It wasn't my main force, but it's called a restyling service. So customers could bring me garments that they love, don't fit into, or maybe there weren't age or venue appropriate any longer, a bit out of style. So we would restyle them. And this happened immediately and it worked well. And I asked some of my clients to consider working with me on these things. And they said, yes, there, there is something in the back of the closet. And so we set up these Zoom meetings or FaceTime meetings. And if they didn't have any tools, I biked them over a sewing kit or I you know, put one in the post for them. Measuring tape, some scissors, some needles, safety pins, some basting cotton. And we helped, I helped them learn about these, you know, simple ways to fit. And it got a little complicated because um, you can't see a lot. You can't see what you're used to seeing. You can't touch people. You can't feel the garment. Um, you can't walk around them and see a 360 view. But we made, we made the compromises and, um, and it worked, as I said. So, and then when the lockdown eased and it's, some customers were absolutely adamant they were never going to get on the tube until this whole thing was sorted out. Other, other people were a little easier about it. So then, you know, I got the visor and the gloves and the mask and, and, and set the studio up so that then we came in everything that they needed to, you know, clean up was there. But I think now I'm almost back to working normal, but um, it, took a, it took a bit of, um, you know, they say you have to be agile in change. And, and luckily I was thinking that way, but my customers were also cooperating with me. So um, it, I managed to work through lockdown, which was, um, and now the restyling, because we're in a green movement and a slow movement and everybody's talking about sustainability, and buying less, but buying better, and investing well in clothes. I can see that um, hopefully people are going to now make that trade and invest in some key pieces and have them bespoke made, but also maybe buy vintage or get some of the garments out from behind the normal everyday wear in the wardrobe and let's take a look at them and, and renew them and bring them into you know, 2020. 
Wow. So was it empowering for your clients who did that? Because um, um, just before we, we, we started recording this podcast, I was telling you about my traumas learning um, how to sew at school. Um, and so, you know, having um, your clients uh, uh, receiving their, their tailoring kit from you by courier um, and then kind of working with you and actually themselves doing some of these alterations must have been empowering, I imagine. I, it, I think it was. I think when someone took, took a look at this and said, what do I do with this, you know? <laughs> so I'd have one on this end of the camera and we, we just go through it. And, and I think learning these simple skills and seeing these minor adjustments or major um, and seeing how the garment then improved on them opened their eyes to how to shop, what to look for, and what they can buy, knowing that it can be worked on, you know. Sometimes you see something in the shops and you think, oh, I love that, it's just not my size, duh. Well, <laughs> there's a way forward, you know. How fantastic, because, you know, it, it, it is um, it's frustrating for me because I'm a, I'm a small size um, and being um, East Asian in the UK, everything is way too long um, and uh, slightly baggy. Um, so uh, it, that is quite useful to know. Um, and of course, I know that, but I'm intimidated. Um, so, you know, if, if I could stay, if I could roll up my trousers and staple them. <laughs> And they look good. That was what I would do. But of course, I'm intimidated by the actual sewing of it. But you know, and, and I think that's a retail tragedy. That now maybe there's some stylists floating about in, in some boutiques, and then people are perhaps being a little bit more helpful. But it is it, it's so soul destroying. It must be to to say I can't have that. You know, I can't wear that. <laughs> a, a client called me up the other day, and she said, "I've got this pair of jeans. I paid off." fortune for them she said now I I can get them on but then I can't walk <laughs> so, is there anything you can do so yes of course so I found a really beautiful piece of flat lace which was dark navy like the color for jeans and I backed it with another fabric and I just split the side seam and inserted this beautiful lace down each outer leg of the trouser and she's in them she's wearing them oh. and it's elevated the garment and it's now a dressy pair of jeans same thing with blouses that don't you know that sort of pull a bit in a certain place and you know there's a solution to all these these troubles and, and also it makes those jeans stand out because people go oh my god where'd you get those jeans yeah. and she can say well i made them sort of yeah. you know sort of. how <laughs> exciting and how sexy to be able to do that it is sexy and it's there, you know, you can say, this was my idea. If I, had the, I had the courage to say, I can't wear these, help. And I had an idea. So I, I'm part of that creative process. And now I've got something nobody else will ever have. Yes. Isn't that terrific? Fantastic. All power to that client and all your clients who, who kind of bravely overcame their fear of sewing. <laughs> Um, so, okay, so do you have tips for our listeners? I think this is a two-part question. Do you have tips for our listeners who might be inspired to have a suit or a gown or a, a, an outfit, outfit made? Sure, sure. Um, think about what you'd like. Maybe visit some fabric stores, visit some boutiques, uh, look online and 
you can say, I like this collar, but I like those sleeves. I like that body. I like that fastening. Um, and then uh, come over. Come into studio and let's talk about it. <laughs> or I'll go shopping with you. Ooh. Fine. You know, I'll take you to the fabric boutiques in, uh, in the West End in Soho where, where everybody shops for the theater. And, you know, and then we can, you know, a few blocks away, you can walk up and down Savile Row and you can have a look at and see how things are being made, you know, and see what your investment involves. Fantastic. Um, and for those um, who may not have the budget for a bespoke outfit, um, in that very specific use of the word bespoke. Um, what advice do you have for styling or freshening up their wardrobe? We, we've touched on it, of course, but anything sure. specific? Sure, I think the one thing is, is um, be aware that when you see something you like, if it's, if it's not that far off a good fit for you, don't, don't be afraid to buy it and then, and then have it restyled. Of course, I'll be straight if somebody brought something in the price tags are still on it and it can be returned, then I would say, this, no, I don't think we, sh we should proceed with this. Um, if you can't get another size, then maybe this isn't the garment for you. Um, but I'll also say, if it can be remedied in any way um, and made more appropriate to your fit and, and, and figure, then absolutely. So um, do that. And, and if you have anything in your wardrobe that you really like and you don't want to part with, let's get it up to date and make it fit. Um, and also, if you see anything in a vintage shop that you, you can't pass up because it's beautifully made and, and these things aren't made anymore, you know, grab it and let's work with it. Terrific. So where can people go to find out more about you and what you offer? Yes, um, you can uh, Google Carol Elaine. My website is carolalaine.com. I have an Instagram account, which is called uh, Carol Elaine Bespoke. And on the Instagram, you can see a, a portfolio of the whole variety of, of men's, ladies, performance gowns. Um, so it's, it's a good selection to look at. Brilliant. So Carol Elaine, thank you so much for coming on Creative Conversations. And thank you. It's been a lot of fun, Yang Mei. My creative conversation today was with Carol Elaine. There are photos and links to some of the, of the things we talked about on the show notes page. You can go there using the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. Or you can go to the Tiger Spirit blog at tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to creative conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast, please share it with your friends wherever you share stuff. Or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify and you can find it by searching for my name, Yang Mei Ui. That's Yang Mei, Y-A-N-G hyphen M-A-Y, Ui, O-O-I. All this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link again is bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at tigerspirituk. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.